You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 162, The Raid on Fort Ticonderoga. Last week I talked about the Battle of Freeman's Farm, where the Americans fought General Burgoyne's British army to a draw in upstate New York. The British were struggling to advance, but their real problem was a lack of good supply lines. American General Horatio Gates had taken command of the Northern Army, replacing General Philip Schuyler in late August. He had lobbied for the command in Philadelphia for months before the loss of Ticonderoga convinced Congress that it was time for a new leader. Once in command, Gates traveled to Albany, where he contacted General Lincoln and General Stark, who were still in what is today Vermont, and asked them, uh, so what do you guys think we should do? Lincoln and Stark developed a plan to harass Burgoyne's rear and disrupt his supply lines from Canada. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, Lincoln originally wanted Stark's militia army to join up with the Continentals further south. Stark's refusal meant that his men were in place to contest the British at the Battle of Bennington. Rather than continue to fight with Stark, Lincoln got on board with the idea of keeping these local militia separate and tried to find another use for them. In September, before the Battle of Freeman's Farm, Lincoln came up with a plan to create more havoc behind British lines. General Burgoyne's forces had captured Fort Ticonderoga in July. After that, they had sailed down Lake Champlain to Skeensboro, marched through the forest to force the Americans out of Fort Anne and Fort Edward, and by mid-September had crossed the Hudson River and were marching south toward Albany. General Burgoyne had asked General Carleton in Canada to deploy some of his forces to garrison the captured Fort Ticonderoga. Carleton pointed out that Ticonderoga was in New York, not Canada and that it was Burgoyne's problem, not his. In fact, Lord Germain, in London, had given precise orders on what regiments were to go to New York under Burgoyne and which would remain in Canada under Carleton. General Carleton would not deviate from those instructions. So, Burgoyne left one regiment of British regulars and one regiment of German Brunswickers to garrison the fort and also to hold Mount Independence, or what the British still called Rattlesnake Hill. Rather than continue to try to maintain supply lines from Skeensboro through the forest all the way to the Hudson River, the British reverted to their original plan to move supplies down Lake George to Fort George. From there, an existing road allowed easier transport to the army that was now moving down the Hudson River. On the American side, General Lincoln planned to disrupt the British supply lines by deploying militia against the British outposts that were relatively small and isolated. 
Lincoln had accumulated about 2,500 soldiers ready for duty. Out of this force, he developed a plan to deploy 500 soldiers each under three different commanders. One division would take and hold Skeensboro. Another would assault Mount Independence. It was hoped that these two divisions would distract the British as a third group assaulted Fort Ticonderoga itself. To lead the assault on Fort Ticonderoga, General Lincoln turned to Colonel John Brown. Colonel Brown is an interesting character who deserves a little background. We've already crossed paths with Colonel Brown several times in our story already. Brown was born in Massachusetts in 1744. He's of no relationship to the famous abolitionist of the same name. He attended Yale College and studied law in Rhode Island under his brother-in-law, Oliver Arnold. Oliver Arnold was an uncle of Benedict Arnold. Brown then moved to upstate New York, where he took a position as the king's attorney, essentially today what we would call a government prosecutor. Shortly before the war began, he moved to Pittsfield in western Massachusetts and won election to the local colonial legislature. Now, Brown was active in committees of correspondence before the war and even went on a mission to Quebec to see if there was any interest in getting them involved in the revolution. Brown found the Quebecois unreceptive, but he did note that Fort Ticonderoga in early 1775 was a valuable prize that the British had left relatively unguarded. When fighting broke out at Lexington and Concord, Brown worked with Samuel Parsons, assembling a raiding party to capture Fort Ticonderoga. As a member of the Pittsfield Militia, Brown met with local militia commander James Easton to combine their forces with the Green Mountain Boys under Ethan Allen to take the fort. As they were preparing to do so, Colonel Benedict Arnold showed up and tried to take command. Brown, along with Easton, Allen, and just about everyone else, seemed to take an immediate dislike to Arnold and were among his first haters. After they captured the fort, Brown was given the honor of delivering the news to the Continental Congress. His refusal to acknowledge Arnold's role in his message to Congress put him on Arnold's personal enemies list. Brown took a commission as a major in the Continental Army and spent the rest of 1775 under the command of General Richard Montgomery, first scouting enemy positions in Canada and also engaging in several skirmishes with the enemy. In late 1775, Colonel Arnold made his famous wilderness march to Quebec that I discussed back in episode 76. Arnold and Brown once again had to work with each other. During the New Year's Eve attack on Quebec, Brown was given command of the attack on the main gates, which was designed to divert attention as Montgomery and Arnold launched the real attack on the other side of the city. During the retreat from Quebec, Arnold accused Brown of stealing property from captured British officers. Brown demanded a court-martial to clear his name, but never got one. Brown, in turn, brought 13 charges against Arnold, which likewise never saw a hearing. After Arnold's success at Valcour Bay in late 1776, Arnold's reputation nationally had made him a hero once again. 
a frustrated Major Brown published his pamphlet at around this time where he famously wrote of Arnold, Money is this man's God, and to get enough of it, he would sacrifice his country. There's a story that shortly after that, Arnold threatened to attack Brown if he ever saw him. Brown got word of this and went to a dinner party that Arnold was attending and confronted him. At the party, Brown got right in Arnold's face and called him a scoundrel. That's the same sort of language that led to the mcintosh burnett duel in Georgia. Arnold, however, did not take the bait and simply ignored Brown. Congress promoted Arnold to Brigadier General in early 1777 and swept away Brown's charges without a hearing. Brown, by this time a lieutenant colonel, resigned his commission and returned to Pittsfield. It's not explicitly clear why Brown resigned, but it seems likely that his resignation was related to Congress's decision to promote Arnold and dismiss Brown's charges against the new general. Whatever the exact reason, by spring 1777, Brown was back to practicing law in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Whatever ill will Brown harbored over the military politics, when Burgoyne invaded New York in the summer of 1777, Brown, as a Massachusetts militia colonel, made his services available to General Lincoln. General Lincoln tasked Colonel Brown with the attack on Fort Ticonderoga. On September 13, 1777, Brown departed Paulette, Vermont, with 500 hand-picked men. Among his men were portions of Colonel Seth Warner's regiment, the former Green Mountain Boys, who had taken Fort Ticonderoga with Brown over two years prior. Colonel Johnson led another 500 militia for the assault on Mount Independence. One source for the account identifies him as Thomas Johnson of the Vermont Militia. Another source identifies him as Colonel Samuel Johnson of the Massachusetts Militia. Since General Lincoln's account only calls him Colonel Johnson, I'm not sure we have a definitive answer as to who this guy was, but a guy named Colonel Johnson led the attack on Mount Independence. Colonel Benjamin Ruggles Woodbridge of the Massachusetts Militia led another 500 men to secure Skeensboro. After the three colonels departed with their troops, General Lincoln personally took another 600 soldiers on September 17th, leaving only about 400 men at Paulette. Lincoln set out to join up with Colonel Woodbridge near Skeensboro. Now, the mission required speed. The men left tents and any other heavy baggage behind. They carried what food and ammunition they could use, with only a little extra carried in the saddlebags of a few cavalry that went with them. Once all the men were in the field, General Lincoln received orders from General Horatio Gates to recall all of these men and move south to meet up with the main army, which was about to fight the Battle of Freeman's Farm that I discussed last week. Lincoln turned around and began to head back to Paulette. He also dispatched messengers to the three divisions to do the same. However, they did not get these messages in time. Brown marched his men south, crossing Lake Champlain at a narrow area, then marching north to Ticonderoga. According to Brown's report, the men marched all night, launching a dawn attack on the morning of September 18th. 
Some other reports indicate that they were in the area for at least two days observing the British garrison. It is likely that Brown, a former scout himself, did at least send some sort of advance team to gather intelligence on the British defenses before his attack. Brown deployed Captain Ebenezer Allen and a group of 20 rangers to retake Mount Defiance. That, if you recall, is where the British famously deployed cannons to force the American abandonment of Fort Ticonderoga. The rangers used knives and tomahawks to kill or capture the company, most of whom were asleep on the mountaintop. His men retook the mountain without a shot fired and without raising any alarm. Down and around Fort Ticonderoga itself, there were about a thousand British and German defenders. Brown was attacking with only 500 men. So, even ignoring the four walls and the artillery that the British had, they also had a numerical advantage against the attackers. Brown, however, had surprise on his side. Nearly half the garrison was outside the fort walls and not expecting any sort of attack when the Americans arrived. In fact, when the Americans approached, the pickets mistook them for returning Canadian militia. The Americans captured the guards without a shot fired. The Americans rounded up over 300 prisoners as the stunned garrison could not react to the attack before the Americans had them. Most of the prisoners were taken at the Lake George Landing, where the British maintained a fleet of bateaux and small ships for transporting men and supplies. The British did manage to close the doors of the fort and keep the attackers at bay from behind the fort walls. Colonel Brown sent an officer up to the fort to demand its surrender. The commander, British Brigadier General Henry Watson Powell, refused to surrender. I think that his response from the top of the fort walls went something like this. I don't want to talk to you no more, you empty-headed animal food trough whopper. I fart in your general direction. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. Is there someone else up there we could talk to? No, now go away or I shall taunt you a second time. Okay. Actually, Powell responded much more professionally and not nearly as funny, saying something to the effect of, The garrison invested to my charge, I shall defend to the last. The Americans fired on the fort with some of the field cannon that they had just captured from the British. But they did not have nearly enough firepower to knock down any walls. Even if they did, as I said, they did not have the overwhelming numbers to storm the defensive artillery and take the fort from the garrison. With enemy forces still occupying artillery on top of Mount Independence, even taking the fort could lead to the attackers putting themselves in a vulnerable position. Brown only had orders from Lincoln to harass and specifically not to attempt to recapture the fort unless an easy opportunity presented itself. Instead, Brown and his men satisfied themselves by destroying or carrying away everything around the fort, all the outbuildings, ships, food, supplies, and prisoners. The men ran off all the horses and cattle, denying transport and provisions to the enemy. British General Powell could only watch with frustration from behind the fort walls. 
in addition to taking over 300 enemy prisoners, the Americans recaptured more than 100 American prisoners who were being held by the British, most of whom were being held after their capture at the Battle of Hubberton. Brown reported that he had two or three men killed during the attack and less than five wounded. The British suffered two or three dead and a few wounded, but mostly lost the 300 prisoners. Across the river, Colonel Johnson's attack on Mount Independence did not catch the defenders by surprise. The German defenders were ready for him, and Johnson opted to call off the attack. Brown's force remained in the area around Fort Ticonderoga for four days before they withdrew. Brown turned over most of his prisoners to Colonel Johnson, who marched the unlucky British and German soldiers back to Paulette. After he had completed his work at the fort, Brown boarded a fleet of captured ships and sailed south down Lake George. He hoped to seize a British supply depot on Diamond Island. Brown's men left late in the day on September 22nd. Although the island was only 25 miles away, poor weather and adverse winds prevented them from reaching the island the next day. Brown had with him several suspected loyalists who his men had collected during the raid. Several of these men were held aboard his ships. However, one officer allowed a loyalist parole to sail his own ship behind the fleet. This man made his escape on the night of September 23rd and sailed to shore. He walked down to the bank across from Diamond Island. There, he shouted until he got the attention of the guards on the island who transported him across. He warned the garrison commander, Captain Thomas Albury, of the imminent attack. When Brown's fleet arrived the next morning, the 24th, the two or three companies of German and British soldiers were ready to contest the attack. They had cannons and were in position behind entrenchments. Brown fired on the defenders from his small ships, which had mounted cannons of their own. He attempted to find a place to land his troops where they would not be under enemy fire, but found the defenders had covered the whole island. After a brief firefight, it became clear that he could not mount a successful attack against the defenders. Brown reported two men were mortally wounded in the firefight and a few more with lesser wounds. Brown reported that there were about 300 defenders at Diamond Island although 100 to 150 seems to be a more probable number. He also reported another 40 men still at a garrison at Fort George further to the south. But rather than continue the fight, Brown sailed away. He found a landing point, burned his ships and all the supplies that the men could not carry, and marched overland to Skeensboro. The original plan had been to meet up with Colonel Woodbridge and 500 reinforcements there. However, General Lincoln had already recalled Woodbridge back to Paulette. The Americans had expected to encounter more enemy soldiers in the area. Instead, though, General Burgoyne had ordered almost all the units to join his main army, leaving almost no one in his rear. So, Brown was able to return with his men to Paulette and rejoin the rest of the army. John Brown's raids on Ticonderoga and Diamond Island did not get much attention at the time, 
since much larger armies under General Gates and General Burgoyne were already engaged further to the south. However, these raids ensured that Burgoyne's army was cut off from any supplies, not only from Canada, but even from the stores that Burgoyne had left at Fort Ticonderoga. Many regiments had left much of their baggage at Diamond Island so that they would not have to carry it on their march. Even though the raids by the Americans did not capture the island, the British were afraid to transport anything from there, fearing additional raids on transports. Such fears were well-founded. After Colonel Brown rejoined General Lincoln at Paulette, Lincoln redeployed him with several hundred men to patrol the area between Fort Edward and Fort George and to attack any enemy parties on the move if he could find them. Meanwhile, General Lincoln took the bulk of his army south to join up with General Gates and the main Continental Army near Saratoga. On September 29th, Lincoln took command of the right wing of Gates's army and prepared for Burgoyne's attack. General Stark also moved south, although he still refused to put himself and his militia under Gates's command. He continued to operate as an independent entity. He and Gates did communicate regularly, and Stark's militia continued to be an obstruction to any attempts Burgoyne might make to retreat north or to make a move east toward New England in order to get away from Gates's Continentals. Brown sent a report to General Gates indicating that he believed that Burgoyne's army only had enough food for the next four weeks and was cut off from receiving any more supplies. This may have encouraged Gates in his belief that all he had to do was keep the British contained until the army ran out of food. Burgoyne would either have to surrender or make a desperate attack against the American entrenchments. In Canada, General Carleton was alerted to the new danger against Fort Ticonderoga. He finally relented and sent several more regiments of regulars to reinforce the fort's garrison. Also, by this time, Barry St. Ledger's army, which had retreated from Fort Stanwix and had returned to Canada, was also making its way south toward Ticonderoga in an effort to join up with General Burgoyne's army. St. Ledger's forces arrived at the fort on September 27th, a few days after Brown had completed his raid. St. Ledger, however, was reluctant to continue his journey to link up with Burgoyne. He was concerned that Fort Ticonderoga would fall under attack again. There was also the danger that his army would suffer an ambush in an area that a week or two earlier the British had considered perfectly secure. As a result, Burgoyne would find himself without St. Ledger's reinforcements as he prepared to make his final stand. Brown's raid proved a great success in helping to isolate General Burgoyne's army and keep critical supplies from reaching his men at this critical time. Next week, as General Gates and General Burgoyne take a pause before their final showdown, we head south again as General Washington threatens General Howe's control of Philadelphia with his attack at Germantown. Music 
This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks as always to Trey Nance and George Davis for their support of this podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Also thanks to Kevin Randolph, who recently joined at the Standard Bearer level. Anyone who can support the show at the $10 level or higher will receive a different magnet each month with a flag from the American Revolution. It's a small token of my thanks for your support. Thanks also to James Walsh, Ricky LaBeouf, and Laura Bass for making a generous one-time contribution via PayPal. I am so glad that people are willing to provide support, especially in these difficult times. Anyone so inclined can always make a gift via PayPal with the details for doing so at the end of each episode on my blog. Speaking of which, if you don't read my blog, you may be missing out. Each episode is a written version of the podcast episode, so rereading it may not be that interesting to you if you prefer to listen. However, if you do, the blog also includes maps and illustrations, as well as online and book resources beyond my recommendations of the week. So, if you want to check those out, just go to blog.amrevpodcast.com. This week we heard how the militia attacked Fort Ticonderoga and other locations behind the British lines in upstate New York. While these raids did not lead to any headline-grabbing victories, they did help to isolate General Braddock's British regulars from any further supply or support. They contributed to the ultimate victory at Saratoga, which I promise I will get to soon. I know that I first started the Saratoga campaign nearly 20 episodes ago and have been slowly working my way through both that and the Philadelphia campaign at the same time. I thought about doing each campaign separately, but then decided to stick to chronological episodes so that we would go through both campaigns at the same time just as people at the time experienced them. I know this can get a little convoluted and confusing, but if anyone's to blame, it's General Howe. He should have taken Philadelphia before Burgoyne even began his campaign so that he could have provided the necessary support later. My book recommendation this week is one of many books that cover the Saratoga campaign generally. This one is called Don Troiani's Campaign to Saratoga, 1777 the turning point of the Revolutionary War in Paintings, Artifacts, and Historical Narrative, by Eric Schnitzer and Don Troiani. 
This book differs from other books about Saratoga in its focus on the men and the battle, particularly the foot soldier. It strives to give you a feel for what it was like to live and fight as an enlisted man in this campaign. The book also gives details on uniforms, military insignia, and other details that I just don't have time to cover in this podcast. One of the book's authors, Don Troiani, is a fabulous artist who is known quite apart from this book for his paintings of famous battle scenes, primarily from the Revolutionary War and Civil War. You've probably seen his work before, even if you didn't recognize the artist. This book is full of great artwork that shows the details of soldiers' uniforms and other elements of the campaign, the work of Don Troiani. The other author, Eric Schnitzer, is a well-known expert on Saratoga specifically. He is a park ranger at Saratoga National Park and has devoted much of his life to the Saratoga campaign. Eric has been kind enough to answer several questions for me as I've been writing about the campaign. He not only knows his stuff, but is enthusiastic about sharing it with others. His years of research shine through in this book. The book itself was published last year in 2019. It is under 300 pages, not counting an extensive notes section. I would not characterize this book as an academic work, nor is it written like a narrative. I guess I think of it much like a museum book, but of a battle rather than a museum. It gives interesting backgrounds, quotes, and details about events, but it is more a description of events that happened during and around the battle than it is a story or a researcher trying to validate some sort of thesis. I think the illustrations are what really set it apart from most other books on the topic, and I think it is an interesting read and gives a different perspective on the Saratoga campaign. So, if any of that sounds interesting to you, then please check out Don Troiani's Campaign to Saratoga. For my online recommendation this week, I wanted to focus on Colonel John Brown. There really is no good biography on the man. However, if you want to read a little more about him, my recommendation is an online ebook called Colonel John Brown of Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Calling it a book may be a bit generous. The entire work is less than 40 pages, and half of that is appendices and letters. The work was originally given as a presentation to the Daughters of the American Revolution in 1908. The author, Archibald Howe's purpose in giving the address was to draw attention to a monument built to Brown near his grave in New York that was by that time 80 years old and beginning to fall apart. I guess it worked because a few years later, the DAR dedicated a new memorial to Brown on the site. The work is a brief overview of John Brown's life and accomplishment, and it is available as a free ebook on archive.org. You can search for Colonel John Brown at the site or use the direct link on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. <laughs>